You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. And in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots amongst all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. And by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make it my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, neither in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they are now bringing up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now I prefer... Now, after several years, I come to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or torment. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they they found when I stood before the council. Other than this, one thing that I cried out while standing among them is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am now on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying when Lysasis, the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centron that he should be kept in custody, but having some liberty and none of his, but having some liberty that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about the faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is the word of the Lord. 
God, let's pray together. Father, we love you and we praise you. We believe, though imperfectly, all that the law and the prophets say. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, yet um, our lives, our choices, um, our brokenness doesn't always reveal that. So would you help us this evening believe all the more that you are who you say you are. Will you do that through your word? Will you do that now? Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Welcome, Christ Church. I, it's a genuine joy every week for me to gather with you. I pray your weekend was good. I pray your week was good. If it wasn't, I pray that you leaned on Christ and trusted in him uh, for uh, and in those difficult times. And if you didn't do that, I pray that this service is a balm for your soul. I pray um, that it is meeting you uh, where you need to be met in terms of hearing the gospel, in terms of singing praises with God's people. Um, And I pray that you leave here encouraged not to uh, feel guilty for your bad week, but to trust Jesus in your bad week and to move on uh, this next week in worship and praise, no matter what your circumstances are. And if you're visiting, I'm really glad you're here. I'm I'm thankful uh, that you decided to come and worship with us today. My name's Kyle. I am one of five pastors here at Christ Church, and uh, we are so thankful you're here. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you. I'm going to be standing down here at the bottom of the stage when this is over, and uh, please come up and talk to me if I don't get uh, to you first, and I would love to get to know you. And so as you just heard read, we are, we are finishing up the book of Acts. Paul is on his slow journey to Rome, and I say slow because it is slow. I mean, if we're not careful, we just read past these things pretty quickly, chapter 23 to chapter 24, and we miss the fact that this is two years of Paul's life. You just, you just heard two years of Paul's life read in about three minutes. That's why I wanted him to read the whole thing, because like, you had to stand for two minutes, and you guys are like, geez, this is long. And I wanted that to kind of sit, and you think, yeah, that two minutes translates to two years of Paul being in prison. Um, and uh, to be honest, when, when, uh, when Nathan asked me to preach this week, and whenever I read this passage, I was like, Nathan's already preached this passage. We've already heard this over and over again. If, it, if it's not Paul, it's Peter. Uh, somebody is being arrested. Uh, there's always a riot. There's always someone mad, always someone to try to get someone killed. Um, I think I've heard this before. And in that way, Acts reminds me a lot of Dateline. Anybody in here watching any Dateline these days? Don't be afraid to show your hands. Oh, we got Kyle Junick in the back. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. So um, I say Dateline because when Michelle and I had our first baby, we first had our uh, uh, Maddie. There was no Netflix, I think, was still sending DVDs at that time. I think that was kind of how they operated. No Disney Plus. We didn't have cable, couldn't afford it. And so we on our 300-pound TV hooked up to an antenna that, like, goes through our wall outside every night after we put the baby to bed. We were so exhausted, couldn't read, couldn't do anything meaningful, so we watched Dateline. Dateline and other kind of whodunit gotcha shows are, are funny, and they're an interesting phenomenon in our culture, especially um, because every episode is basically the same, right, in every way. We know someone did something. We know at the end... We're going to find out who it is, but for some reason, it keeps drawing us in. We keep watching it. We keep buying those cliffhangers right before all the commercial. Yeah, there's commercial breaks at this time. Right before the commercial breaks, Michelle and I would keep 
our eyes open and finish each uh, Dateline episode. There's always something new. And Acts 24, I think, is like that. I think it's like Dateline in the sense that if you could just skip right over it. You kind of know what's going to happen. You know, okay, another scene with Paul before the governors. But it's worth sticking around during the commercial breaks. It's worth slowing down and reading and studying. And that's why we choose to preach this way. We don't, we don't pick and choose what we want to hear. We just kind of preach through a book of the Bible. And so here we are in Acts 24. And to recap where we've been last week, we, re- we read that Jesus told Paul that he would testify in Rome, so he shouldn't be afraid. And then after that, God sovereignly placed Paul's nephew in the right place at the right time to hear that uh, there was a plot to kill Paul. Um, and so uh, Nathan reminded us about how unusual it was for a prisoner to get a 400-person escort uh, from one place to another. But Paul was making a name for himself. He was becoming quite a big deal. Um, he, was, he was kind of first thought to be this Egyptian uh, um, um, riot leader of 4,000 assassins. Remember, I mean, just imagine that. The, the stirrup that was in Jerusalem made these people think this guy must be in charge of 4,000 assassins. And then the Romans realized, oh, he's not that guy, but who is this guy? He speaks so many languages and he's a natural born Jewish citizen or a Roman citizen. And there's just so much about Paul that kind of keeps elevating his status to the point where he's sent to the governor uh, to be judged, right? And it's not only... It's not only the Romans who are recognizing this, but it's the Jews as well. They're, they realize there's something about this man that we need to shut up. We need to stop him. He, is, he has too much influence. His message is too powerful. And if you, we're not going to do it this evening, but if you kind of lay this court scene on top of Jesus's, you see that there's a ton of similarities. There's a ton of uh, things that are, um, I don't know, just, just so alike. One, they're both falsely accused, right? We know that. Um, They are uh, trying to kill him. They are uh, continually lying and bringing him before people. Um, Something sad and terrible is happening in both of these court scenes. They want want this person dead. And not only are innocent people like Jesus and Paul being attacked, but Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the universe, is being presented as a problem instead of the only solution. If you remember Jesus' trial, this is like one of the most horrific verses, I think, in the Bible. Pilate is saying, hey, you want me to crucify the king of the Jews? And do you guys remember the chief priest's response? You know what he says? They say, we have no king but Caesar. What a horrific, horrific thing to say. It's just reminiscent of the initial rejection of God as king as Israel longed for a king uh, like the rest of the nations. Um, and, and the same thing is happening to Paul. They're saying this Messiah he's preaching is a disease. These chief priests again are missing it. Their hearts are hardened by sin. Sin is so corrupting. It's sinister. It seeps into our lives through our eyes and our ears. It it kind of seeps into our bodies from our own sinful and corrupted heart. It it pollutes our minds and everything in us. It cripples us until we either become passively resisting God or actively opposed to him in what we say and what we do. Chief priests of Israel, we're not immune to this process and neither are you and I. But for the grace of God that saved Paul, but for the grace of God that saved 
us. Tonight, we're going to break up this whole chapter into three sections. So note takers, if you want to get your pen ready, I can help you out real quick. I've already begun the first one. The first one is the corrupting nature of sin. I've already begun to allude to that, and we're going to continue in that. The second is the continuity of the gospel, um, not just in this passage, but from the creation of the world to the consummation of the world, the continuity of the gospel that Paul is preaching. And then third is the coming judgment. Um, that is going to be our last point this evening. So uh, this point practiced, uh, this first point, the corrupting nature of sin, it preaches itself. It's not difficult. I don't have to really work hard to show you sin in this passage. I mean, we just, we just heard Paul was seized in a temple under false accusations, then he was beaten and then almost killed by his own people and then rescued by the occupying Romans who then almost beat him as well. Very confused about who he was. Um, nobody seems to understand who Paul is and everybody is looking out for themselves. And that's not even our text. That's, that's all the sin before we even get into what we are studying this evening. So in our text, we have a corruption sandwich, like a sin sandwich is the way you can look at it. The first slice of bread on top is this sham trial full of lies, full of false accusations. And the second bread on the bottom is a false imprisonment for two years that Paul endures under the hand of Felix. We, we want to be and pretend like we're aware of the way sin affects us. We like to imagine that we're in control, right? That we, we get it, we can manage it, we know it's not good, uh, but if we can just keep a hand on it, if we can just keep a handle on it, we're okay. But these two examples of sin in our text this evening are super sinister. Like they, they, they've caused me to pause this week as I was studying and just ask God, like, God, in what ways... In what ways am I unknowingly against you, right? These chief priests, their argument was they believed that they knew who God was. They believed that they knew what was right. And so they were with full conviction, like Paul before his conversion, actively opposing God, right? And then the second scary part, the, 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 the lower slice of bread is Felix. Like I was like, Father, what ways am I knowingly, knowingly sinning against you, continually Constantly, just managing it a little to try to make my, myself feel better, try to make those around me feel better, try to make sure that it doesn't get so out of hand that it's noticeable by my wife or by my uh, fellow pastors. Like sin is, is evil. It's corrupting. This, this whole scene is so tragic. The chief police, uh, priests were 100% convinced they were doing God's will and Felix 100% did not care. He just wanted to further his career and do what was necessary to get what he needed to make him feel better. And I can't help but think that's why Paul keeps telling these stories, right? We, Nathan mentioned that he just tells this testimony of Damascus and Luke records it three times. He's just trying to say like, listen, I was just like you. I remember where I was. I was on the road to Damascus doing exactly what you were doing. Right? But for the grace of God, but for the clarity that Jesus brought me, I wouldn't be here I wouldn't be here today. Chief priests and the elders and their hired lawyer were in the same boat Paul was. They were, they were there believing to be doing the will of God and 
they were ready to lie and murder to stop the spreading of the name of Jesus. So let's look at that again. The case against Paul before Felix, uh, Felix it begins in verse 4. And we're just going to read a few verses just to uh, get our bearings. It says, but this is uh, their lawyer talking. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So they came accusing Paul of being a deadly disease, a leader of rioters, and a profaner of the temple. All of these accusations were very serious and would be cause for execution. So their, their goal, they're going for Paul's neck. Like any of these things could be grounds for his execution. But if you think about it, it's funny because they were the ones who were guilty of all these things. That's how sin works, right? We want to ignore it in our own lives and we want to point it out in other people's lives. We want to minimize it in our own lives and use it to cut other people down. They were the ones who caused the riot. It was the Jews in the temple, right, who, who hey, this man is here. This man is doing all these things. They, they caused the riot. And actually, they defiled the temple because a Jewish man who was purified and desiring to worship honestly was there and they refused him, right? Like, they are the ones who are guilty of what they're saying. Their case is weak and flimsy. And you can hear it. You can hear it like the way they kind of, oh, uh, dear Felix, like they're just kind of, I don't know, the, the lawyer is just, he's sleazy. You know, and I'm, I'm not saying all lawyers are sleazy. I don't know what your profession is, and I'm sure you're wonderful. But um, this lawyer is sleazy, and his case is weak. Paul puts all their accusations to rest basically by just pointing at his head. It's like, I got a haircut. You guys remember that last week? Purification, cut his hair short. He's saying, it's been 12 days. How can all of this happen in 12 days? This is ridiculous. I've been gone for years. I've been back for 12 days. I got my hair cut, went into the temple with these people and went to worship. And these accusations, if they were true, the witnesses should be here. Right? And again, Paul, is a, he's brilliant. He's technical. These, he knows how Roman law works. Those witnesses should be there. They should be in the courtroom testifying against him. And he's saying, it's not too long ago. You could still go find them. The reason why these men weren't there is because Romans took false accusations extremely seriously. If you came and tried to lie before the Roman guard, you would get the punishment that you were trying to get the other person to have. So these Asian Jews don't show up. Right? They're, they're, they're not going to show up to be uh, killed. And so they don't. And so the Jews had no evidence or witness or proof for the claims they made. Their complaint was not based on the violation of a Roman law, but on their personal theological beliefs. And Paul was masterfully pointed. Uh, he pointed that out by making this confession, which is not something a lawyer, a good lawyer, would let you do. You don't make a confession in the middle of your case. But Paul having put their case aside and exposing their sin and exposing their lies, he gets to the heart of what he wants to. Because if you just think about it, Paul's not the one on trial here. Paul is not the one that the Jews genuinely hate. Jesus predicted this. He said, they're going to bring you before governors and officials. He said, they're going to hate you. And when they hate you, don't forget, they're not hating you, they're hating me. Paul could easily just say, hey, all those accusations are false. You can't prove them. Let me go. But he says, I'll tell you why I'm here. And this is what he says. This is his confession in court. This I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept. 
that there will be a resurrection both of the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Nathan mentioned it a few weeks ago. The Romans really didn't care what you worshipped or how you did it as long as you didn't cause a problem. They would take over a nation. It's pretty genius. They would take over a nation, put some people there to control it, and let those people just continue to worship. And, and you could do that as long as your worship didn't stir anything up. And the, the chief priests knew that. And so that's why this was the point they're trying to make Paul. He's causing riots. He is a problem. Paul knew that it would be clear that his imprisonment was based on false accusations. We talked about that. So he used his speech to again highlight his theological point that he was a true Jew. That's the point he's trying to make. He's looking right at the truth, right at the chief priests. He's saying, you believe the same thing I believe. We are not on different pages here. I am a true Jew. His worship was in fact true Jewish worship. And his imprisonment was because of his theological Jewish belief in the resurrection of the dead. And not just of the dead in general, but of the Messiah, the coming one, the expected one, Jesus Christ. He used the truth of the resurrection last week to get out of a a problem. He made the Sadducees and Pharisees fight. And he is using it this week to point to the promised one, the Messiah. And uh, so all the people who are with him uh, can hear His worship was the purest form. This is interesting. His worship was the purest form of Judaism the world had ever known. His worship was the purest form of worship in general the world had ever known. Not because of the piety of Paul, but because of the purity of Jesus Christ. And that's the same of you. Your worship isn't what it is. It it doesn't honor and glorify God because of how nice you dressed up today or how often you read the Bible or how many people you shared the gospel with. All those things are somewhat important things, but your worship is valuable because Jesus is valuable. Your worship matters because the one that you are worshiping matters. He has washed you and made you clean and he stands before you. He is advocating for you. And Paul knew that. He had no fear. He had no fear in sharing the gospel. A man so pure and free from sin that death had no claim on him. He was resurrected. A man so free and clear from sin that the grave could not hold him. A, a man completely opposite of the chief priests. A man completely opposite of Felix. A man completely opposite of you and of I. Paul knew his worship was genuine, so he distanced himself from the label sect. That was another intentional label that the Jews were trying to put. That implied rogue, bad theology. That implied a split off from what is true and right. And he, Paul sought to associate himself with the title, The Way. You heard, you heard uh, Schuyler read that. It's a common title for uh, the followers of Jesus in Acts and something that Felix, as we see in verse 22, Felix was supposedly quite familiar with. Jesus called himself... And John, the way, the truth, and the life. He called himself the true vine. He called himself the good shepherd. He called himself the son of man. He called himself the gate, the true gate. None of those are different, right? It's like sometimes when you read the New Testament, you're like, what is Jesus? He's like this transformer that just keeps shifting into new things, you know? And, and what Jesus was trying to say was every branch that abides in me, every human that trusts in me, every sheep that enters through me will have eternal life. There is no other way to God but through Jesus. He called himself that, and Paul says, I am a man of the way. That leads us to our next point in the continuity of the gospel. Before I move on, I, I just I want to talk about sin. It saddens me 
right, that this is the air we breathe. Okay, sin is the water that we swim in. And this water has so polluted, it's been polluted for so long that we just kind of push aside the sludge and the trash and just exist in it. It is, it is the one commonality. Here's, this is, I don't know if this is completely true. I think it kind of is. There's, there's two commonalities I think I have with every human being on this planet. One is that I'm created in the image of God and valuable because of that. And two, I am corrupt to my core. Right, like we, we want to divide, we want to, we want to associate, we want to just like culture and sex and gender and all these different things. But we know, we know that every human is valuable because of God and every human is corrupt because of sin. We have that clarity. You open up your news feed, it's funny, and you'll see on the front page stories of men and women being celebrated for being just like the chief priests. Right, completely convinced that they're right yet opposing God. Or they might be celebrated because they're just like Felix. They could care less if they're wrong. They know it, but they're going to continue to do those things because it's benefiting them, right? They're on the front page. Why would they stop? Both of these realities, again, sobered me and caused me to pray for both myself and for you this week. I feel like I say this almost every time I preach, and I don't know if it's just because I'm a one-trick pony. I think it's because the Bible says this every time I preach, um, and that is that sin is devastating. It's dangerous. It brings about death. And here's a, here's a gospel truth we don't preach often, an eternity separated from God in hell. That's what sin creates. That's what it does. Not even Paul or the chief priests or the chosen nation of Israel were exempt from this reality. But for the grace of God in Jesus, we would all be given over to the deadly effects of sin. But praise God. Praise God for the gospel. Praise God, he made a way to free us from the grips of sin and eternal effect that it has on people. So if you're here and you're like, this sin sounds crazy, this gospel sounds crazy, my encouragement to you is receive it. It's trust it. Believe it. And if you're in here and you're like, I, I, I love the gospel, my encouragement to you is to preach it to yourselves. To talk about it as you come and go. Write it on your doorposts. Meditate on it day and night as you lie down and as you get up. Just think, sin is deadly, but Jesus saves. Sin corrupts, but Jesus saves. Sin is darkness, but Jesus is light. We've got to preach this to ourselves because we are not exempt from its effects, though we are exempt from its final effect if you're in Christ. It's important. That continuity of the gospel, like I mentioned um, is our next point. And the gospel in Paul's day was not a new message. It wasn't a new idea. We tend to think that it's kind of like God 2.0. Um, but it was not invented by Jesus the day before the cross, somehow fixed the mess that he didn't fix with his life, so now he's going to try to create a new message. Um, the gospel, the death of Jesus Christ to pay for the sins of his chosen people was established before God even laid the foundations of the world. It's, it's older than time itself. I chose the word continuity. This is the, de the definition that I got. It's the first one if you look it up on Google. So I guess I should have probably done a little more research. But it says this. It's the unbroken and consistent existence or operation of something over a period of time. That's what continuity means. The unbroken and consistent existence or operation of something new over time. And I chose this word because Paul, this is Paul's defense against the Jews. This is what he's trying to make clear. Paul's worship of the resurrected Jesus was not a new idea, but an old one. Paul worshiped the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. That was continually alluded to in the Old Testament through the law and the prophets. In verse 11, Paul says, 
that he came to Jerusalem to worship. Then in verse 14, he clarifies what he means by that um, and says that he came to worship according to the way. And then in verse 24, he makes it crystal clear for Felix and Drusilla that that way Paul worships through is, is faith in Jesus Christ. Paul goes to great lengths to prove that point in his letter. He is constantly, all of his letters, connecting Jesus with the Old Testament. And it's so much to the point that in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 20, he says that all the promises of God, right, and all Paul had at that time were the law and the prophets, right? Those were the promises of God he was alluding to. All of them find their yes in Jesus. Paul wanted to make it clear that he was a faithful Jew. No doubt Paul's knowledge of the continuity of the gospel fueled his faith and his confidence that Jesus was the Messiah. This is an important point. The long-awaited one of Israel who saved him by grace through faith and mobilized him to tell the world of God's love. We as your elders, we desire the same for you. You know, and you desire the same for us. And you and your community groups and your deacons desire the same. Every week, Nathan crafts a liturgy. I'm, I'm normally not preaching. And so if you're a visitor, uh, come back next week. You'll get a different flavor. Um, but Nathan, every week, crafts a sermon and a liturgy to lead us through this, tr this truth. We were preached the gospel from the Psalms, I think, in our liturgy today, right? It's there. Clint takes us through that liturgy faithfully every single week and then administers the, uh, the meal that we're going to have at the end of this service that is meant to point to the life and death of Jesus Christ. Every week, we meet in homes across our city to better understand the word, the preaching, and to better understand and love one another. We also have book studies and Bible studies that this body might be more convinced that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. All of these things are to this end. And to add to that, I'm currently putting together a year's worth of what we're calling our core classes. And Clint is really, he's on it, and he wants me to say this right, so I'm going to say it. Core classes are under what's called our institute. And our institute, it's good. It's good I have Clint, because otherwise I'd be everywhere. But the institute is more, uh, we're trying to create spaces where we all can grow and learn together. And so the spaces that I've already talked about are community spaces. And now we're moving into teaching spaces. We want to have places where we can go and learn about these things together. So I'm currently trying to write these classes so we can do that. And I'm just going to give a quick commercial for them. So class one is a four-week class. It starts on August 8th. And the, the point of this class is to help us understand the calling of God individually on us and collectively on us as his people. It's, if you don't get that point right from the very beginning, uh, Christianity can be a very frustrating thing if you don't understand why God saved you. Uh, two, eight-week class designed to take us from generous Genesis to Revelation, just like Paul is saying, the law and the prophets and show us how the gospel is just, it's just intertwined and woven through that brilliantly by God so that when Christ came on the scene, everyone went, oh, well, not everyone, but anyone who believed went, oh, right? And then that goes straight on into Revelation. The third class, eight-week class, focusing on deepening understanding of our gospel. Um, if, if, if now the gospel is the lens we're supposed to view the world from, we're going to understand it more deeply together and then understand how that then should affect our daily lives, the gospel. And the fourth week is an eight-week class on uh, devotions to deepen your walk with Jesus. So how, what can I be doing daily to grow in my walk with this person, Jesus Christ. Uh, we do these things so that we can, like Paul, so it's connected. It's not just a commercial. It's connected, right, with what we're saying. So we can, like Paul, say that we believe all that is written in the law and the prophets. You can't believe something you don't know. You can't believe something you don't fully understand. And so, I mean, we do that when we trust Jesus. We believe it. But, man, Paul 
loves it and believes it because he sees how Jesus is the Messiah. And we want to do the same together. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So we, as your leaders, we exist to equip you, right? We're supposed to be in this together. This isn't like, okay, you go to a church with a solid pastor, so you're okay. No, we're supposed to be growing in these things together. And we do it imperfectly, but we intentionally do it so that we all might grow together into maturity. We as humanity, we give our time to so many things. And so many of the things we give our time to is actually what's causing our anxiety, is actually what's causing our pain, is actually what's causing our confusion. So let's join Paul in his boldness, forsaking temporary relief, worldly relief for an eternal, never-changing Savior. So that's kind of the end of my commercial. I just want to make it clear, these are not seminary classes. My goal is uh, not to replace your New Testament or your Old Testament or your systematic theology or biblical theology. We're opening it up for sixth graders and up to come to these things, the goal is to grow as a body in these truths. Not supposed to be groundbreaking, but ground solidifying. We hope that in, in the coming years we'll have more and more classes that, that meet more and more needs in our body. But this is where we're going to start with the Word of God together. And so um, let's move on. So why is this hope important? Okay, so this hope in God that we're talking about. Some of you might be thinking, man, Kyle really clammed that that commercial in there. I've lost a lot of you. I did for sure. I'm not ashamed. Um, but I desire, <laughs> I desire that you have some confidence, the same confidence that Paul did today that we're studying, right? To face trials of various kinds. I want our hearts and minds to be filled with God's word so that when doubt, temptation, threat, even death approach us, we can say like Paul does in verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God. So why is this hope so important? Why is it so necessary that we have it and that we seek to give it away freely? Why is Paul willing to put his life on the line time and time again to make it clear that Jesus is the only hope of man? Okay, so let's read again. So this is starting in 15, then we're going to jump down to verse 24, 15 and 16, 24 and 25. Paul says, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. And this is bound in 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about the faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So let's move on to our third and final point, the coming judgment. Paul understands that sin corrupts people, right? We talked about that. Paul understands that the gospel is what people need, this continual gospel that started with the law and the prophets. Um, and, uh, and he preaches a gospel of repentance from sin and turning to Jesus to these people. Because those don't, who will be, they will be judged forever if they don't repent. The Jews rejected it because they didn't recognize their need. They didn't think they needed to repent. And Felix rejected it because it made him uncomfortable. Paul's not afraid to offend. He's not afraid to scare those who hear his message. He knows that one day every human that has ever existed, this is a crazy truth, 
that your Bible teaches every human that's ever existed will be resurrected and will be judged. Paul mentions in verse 15 that it is because of the resurrection of everyone that he strives to keep a clear conscience before both God and man. He understands that all of his words and actions are seen and known not only by an eternal God in heaven, but also by eternal souls here on this earth. The blood of Jesus should bring us great comfort knowing that our sins are forgiven, but it should never give us a license to continue sinning. Paul is right here saying, I care about how I act. I care about what I do because the blood of Jesus should never give us a license um, because it's our sin that actually put, it necessitated the cross. That's what put Jesus there. So what we do and say matters. Paul knows that everything he does and says could be used by God to bring people to faith in Jesus. So he cares how he is viewed by the world. He cares about the words that he says. He cares about the websites he visits, the pictures he views, and the things he likes and scrolls through, the comments he leaves. He cares about the demeanor he keeps at work before people that know him and before people that don't know him. He cares about these things because not one person that has ever existed escapes judgment. It's a sobering thought. The high priest, the elders, and Felix were used to being the judge. They were used to uh, casting the verdict, but Paul made it clear to them that there is an ultimate judge, and his judgment is not based on Jewish law or Roman law, but on faith in Jesus Christ and repentance of sin. Poor, rich, weak, powerful, foolish, wise, peasant, king, chief, priest, chief, sinner, all will be resurrected. All of these titles will be stripped. All accomplishments and failures will be declared just or unjust, and we will spend either an eternity in heaven with God or an eternity in hell separated from all of his goodness and only receiving his wrath. All of this based on one thing, one question. Here it is. Here's the question. Who is Jesus? Who is Do you say he is? What do you believe to be true about the king of heaven and earth? Is he a good teacher? Is he a guru? Is he a, uh, I don't know, charismatic guy, a nice addition to your own kingdom? Do you believe like the chief priest that he's kind of a disease and it'd be better if I just never heard about him? Or is he the king of heaven? Is he the resurrected God-man who has all authority on heaven, in heaven and earth? Is he your king? Is he your hope? Is he your new heart? Is he your new mind? Is he your new eyes? Is he your current life and your future resurrection? That's the question. That's the question that all of eternity hinges on. Who is Jesus? Paul's preaching made the chief priests mad and made Felix scared. And that's always true because this is another truth I feel I preach often because the gospel always comes after our idols. It comes after what we love and want the most. The chief priests, they wanted self-righteousness. They wanted continuity in their own lives. So, of course, the gospel hits them there. Felix wanted fame, wanted his career to grow, wanted more money, wanted all favor and different things like that. So, of course, the gospel hits them there. If you idolize indulgence and career, then the gospel will come after those things, not because God doesn't love you or want you to be happy, but because God knows you're dead and those things are the cause. He wants you to have life. 
Paul preached to Felix, it says in verse 24 and 25, about four things. He preached four things. He preached the first is faith in Christ. The second is righteousness. The third is self-control. And the fourth is the coming judgment. Most of those components uh, of the gospel sharing seem pretty straightforward. Seem like if I were doing that, that would make sense. The one that got me confused a little bit um, is self-control because I don't really expect people I'm speaking to to even care about self-control. They just love themselves and they want to be happy. So they do whatever they want, right? And so for me, it's mostly usually sin, but Paul preached self-control. And I believe this is the, this is the point that made Felix uncomfortable, right? What point makes you uncomfortable? Like when, when God comes after you, what is it that makes you say, whoa, 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 okay, 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 I know, I know, I know, but that, uh, I'll talk to you later. I'll talk to you later. Because all of us have it, Christian or non-Christian. Because if you're not in Christ, God's seeking to save you. And if you are in Christ, God's seeking to sanctify you. And Paul knew Felix. Here's a little fact about Felix and Drusilla. Um, so let me see. This is a mouthful. So let me see if I can. I'm just going to read it. I got this from a blog. It's not, I'm not uh, a historian. Um, but Acts doesn't mention it. But just Drusilla was the granddaughter of Herod the Great, the niece of Herod Antipas, who had beheaded John the Baptist at the request of his wife because John disapproved of her marriage to Herod because he was once, this is the hard part, Herod's brother, Philip's wife. Mouthful. Okay, so Drusilla was his niece. Okay, so this is in the family. And Drusilla had a husband before Felix. And Felix wanted Drusilla. And Drusilla wanted Felix. So she left him and was in this unholy union as well. So self-control was not their strong suit. And Paul knew that. Now, why am I bringing up the tabloids of the ancient Near East, the TMZ of the A-N-E? I was really happy about that. This is at the end. We're tired. It's cloudy. I thought that joke would do, and it did it. We did it. We all, I didn't watch TMZ, but that was also always on my 300-pound TV on my free cable. Um, I don't say this to gossip or to shame these people, really, but to highlight the point that the gospel comes after your idols. We should not be afraid. Uh, with love and grace to point out to our hearers their need for the gospel. We've got to do this carefully. Right? Paul knew Felix. Paul knew that Felix knew somewhat um, uh, of the way. And so Paul went after what Felix lacked, which is self-control. And we know that genuine self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It does not happen to people just randomly. Paul preached faith in Christ and righteousness and the coming judgment, which are universal gospel truth. But he preached self-control to Drusilla and Felix because he knew they lacked it. He knew that detail would make clear their need for Jesus and his spirit. He didn't back down and neither should we. It's a good encouragement. Even in the face of death, Paul preached the gospel. And not just a good part, not just an easy part. But, but the gospel comes after your heart. It comes after your lo- what you love and what you want and what you dream about. It's a reminder that we should not shy away from the hard parts of the gospel, a reminder that we share, that we should share with boldness no matter what the ramifications might be. Everyone will be resurrected and everyone will be judged. What a, what a terrible thing and a beautiful thing. I'll close with this. Here we are, right, two years later. You remember that, remember that. This sermon that took 30 minutes, the gospel, the reading that took three minutes is actually two years of Paul's life. Imagine being Paul. Imagine having no major freedoms. Imagine sitting in jail, being summoned ever so often to chat with a man who wants to bribe you or a bribe from you. Imagine him retiring and leaving you in prison as a favor of those who falsely accused you to put you in prison in the first place. Imagine that. 
Imagine remembering that night two years ago when Jesus stood right next to you and said that you would preach in Rome. Imagine setting aside your career, your schooling, your hope, your prestige, your plans because a carpenter from Nazareth told you you were to set apart for the gospel. The question is, is, is he worth it for you? Like that's, what, that's what Paul is modeling here. Like, like I said, we've heard this message before, but sitting two years in this prison... The question is, is all of this true? Does the completed work of Jesus on the cross, does his resurrected life, does your forgiveness of sins and new life in Christ beckon you to come and die? Is he worth it genuinely to you? I can't help but think of John the Baptist. So we talked about how this really, really mirrors and images Jesus' trial. I can't help but think of John the Baptist sitting in jail as well. And John sent a messenger to Jesus. You guys remember this story? And he said, hey, are you really the one? Was I wrong? Did I, did I miss something? Jesus didn't write back and say, tell him he's not a true follower. Tell him his faith is weak. Tell how, how dare he say this about me. His response was, tell John heaven is coming. The new earth is breaking in. Do you remember his response? He said, the deaf are hearing. The blind regain their sight. The dead are rising because I am the promised one. Tell John that all of the law and all of the prophets find their yes in me. Tell him not to allow his current reality, his current circumstances to dictate his joy, but to look to his eternal reality, his eternal circumstance to dictate his joy. This clarity like this doesn't come naturally to us at all. This clarity, like Nathan mentioned last week, this clarity is forged in the mundane. It's forged in the Sunday afternoon. It's forged in the GC meeting and the, and the chat over coffee and the, the waking up early to read the scriptures. It's forged in the memorization of God's word, not in the hard times, but in the mundane. So when the hard times come, we have the hope that Paul is talking about today. This clarity comes from understanding what we've even been studying. Like, do you see sin for what it is? That's clarity. You need to know that. Do you believe all that the law and the prophets say about Jesus? Are you gaining understanding in that? Do you live your life before God and man, not with the moment in mind, but with the end in mind? Understanding that every soul in this room, every soul uh, from time past to time future is an eternal being, including yours. This is not it. Those of you who are hurting, this is not your home. Those of you who are killing it and crushing it and stacking up cash, it's going to fade. Right? And, and we should laugh at that because it has, it's such a silly pursuit when we consider the person, Jesus Christ. No one does this perfectly. No one grows in these things perfectly, but we can trust Christ more. We can pursue him and ask him for help. We can deepen our hope in God together as his body. And I encourage us to do so every week week in, week out, until he takes us home or until he returns. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we're thankful for our brother Paul. We're thankful for his example. We're thankful for all of the workers that are on our walls. And we're thankful for their example of faith and trust, Father. But we, we know that all of these titles are stripped. When we lie before you, there is no missionary. There is no super Christian. There's just a human who has either said, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, or they have rejected him. 
Father, we forsake all worldly pursuit of righteousness and holiness, and we right now thank you for the completed work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, the work that all of the law and prophets talked about, the work that Revelation, as we read it, displays as the world worships you for who you are because you are worthy. God, we say thank you for your generosity. Help us to know these things more. Help us to trust you. Help us to put our sin to death that we might uh, more uh, without hindrance love you and know you and have you. Help us to use every mundane moment for your glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.